On the evening of April 15, 1990, a couple decided to go on a pleasant Easter Sunday drive. It was a weekly ritual for Ray and Marie Thornton, a few hours on the empty roads, to unwind and enjoy some alone time apart from the Thornton's three children. At the time, Ray was working for a machine shop, and Marie was a nurse aide, so this Sunday drive was their only time away from their busy lives. As they made their way along Snow Prairie Road, 12 miles out of Coldwater, Michigan, suddenly, out of nowhere, Ray looked in the rearview mirror to see a maroonish-brown van approaching quickly. The speed of this van startled him so much, he increased his speed as well. But the driver of the vehicle clearly had somewhere to be, and aggressively passed the Thorntons on the double-lined road. Ray described it coming up to them like a rocket, never letting off the gas to get around them. A few minutes later, they approached a two-story brick schoolhouse, one of the county's largest rural schools many years ago. Now it was abandoned, and mostly filled with empty beer cans, bookshelves, and remnants of a long-ago history. The Thorntons also spotted the same van that had nearly ran them off the road, parked at the side of the school. From the passenger seat, Marie spotted something disturbing. A man, presumably the driver, was carrying a red-stained sheet to the rear of the building. Because of her profession, Marie assumed anything stained with red was most likely blood. But Ray wasn't convinced. He told his wife it was probably paint. Besides, the van had just passed them and knew the Thorntons were coming up the road behind them, so why would the driver be so flagrant about a bloody sheet? As the Thorntons tried to figure out what they could have just witnessed, and whether or not they should call the police, Ray spotted the van approaching them again. Instead of speeding past them like last time, it nearly rammed their back bumper and rode closely behind for the next two miles, before finally passing them again and speeding off. The Thorntons decided now was a good time to go home and turned off the highway, but within minutes, spotted the van pulled over to the side of the road Ray turned around so they could get the license plate number, but as they approached, they saw the driver taking the license plate off. They also noticed that the passenger door was ajar, with what appeared to be blood, smeared on the door and soaked into the seat. Unbeknownst to the Thorntons, authorities were already searching for the driver of that van, 46-year-old Dennis Depew, and his newly ex-wife, Marilyn. Marilyn was born on January 24, 1941, in Detroit, Michigan, to Dallas and Betty McClenahan. Her sister Beverly was born two years later, and so was Marilyn's future husband. Dennis was the only child of Claude and Elma Depew. After graduating from Burr Oak High School, he enrolled at Michigan State University. This is where I presume Marilyn was already taking classes, after graduating from Edsel Ford High a year or two prior. I couldn't find much about how Marilyn and Dennis crossed paths, but it's very possible that they met at Michigan State in the 60s. By the time Dennis graduated with a degree in business, Marilyn was already pursuing her master's in counseling from Wayne State University. At some point, she moved back to Livonia, where her parents lived, and taught English at a local high school. In the fall of 1967, Dennis was hired to teach typing at a school in Portland, roughly an hour away from Livonia. Within a few years, he was offered a position by Michigan's Treasury Department as a property specialist for the State Tax Commission. The job entailed helping appraisers with property assessments and apparently allowed Dennis to work from home often. 
By the next fall of 1971, the Depews had finally wed, and Marilyn began working as a substitute and teacher of continuing education to women in Coldwater, about two hours west of Livonia. Marilyn took a break from teaching after giving birth to the Depews' first child, Jennifer, in February of 1972. She returned six months later to work full-time as a counselor at Coldwater High. Another daughter, Julie, was born just a year later, and Scott was born six years after that, on Christmas Day. If there were any marital problems going on between the couple at this point, it's unknown. Marilyn kept her marriage separate from work, and away from the 300 students she counseled. In fact, in the 13 years that Principal Bus House worked at the school, he never saw the Depews together, nor met Dennis at all. This was a stark contrast to Marilyn's popularity at the school and her impact on the community as a whole. She also coordinated the local scholarship program and held a post with the Michigan Association of Career Education. Principal Bus House described Marilyn as unassuming, quiet, and sincere, and said she was very involved in career education and women's equality in schools. It was at some point during Marilyn's thriving career that Dennis started to withdraw. Apparently, he had always been the loner type. He was also the type of person who liked to put his thoughts out in the world through writing. In January of 1980, the editor's mailbag section of the Herald Palladium published Dennis's letter. He voices his opinion about a recent debate on Good Morning America between two representatives about crude oil imports. Here's the letter in part. The multinational oil companies have been only responsible to their profit-seeking multinational stockholders with little regard to the welfare of the people of the United States. They have no compelling reason to bid competitively for crude oil because paying higher prices gives them the opportunity to raise their prices, even above their OPEC-induced price rises. The price rises make their own domestic oil inventories worth more. The time has come in this country when crude oil is treated the same as the other energy utilities, electricity and natural gas. These industries are regulated utility monopolies, and crude oil importation and distribution should be a closely regulated national monopoly utility. We've never allowed Consumers Power, Detroit Edison, Michigan Consolidated Gas, and other regulated energy suppliers to increase their profits 90% in one year, as Mobile Oil Company has done. This is a very important bill for the residents of Mr. Stockman's district, since he is on the important House Subcommittee on Energy and therefore has substantial power regarding this question. Not much is known about the preceding nine years in terms of the Depew's relationship, but somewhere along the way, Marilyn became increasingly unhappy in the marriage, and Dennis continued to withdraw. In August of 1983, he received a suspended sentence and a $20 fine for speeding in Ohio. Six years later, in April of 1989, Marilyn filed for divorce. A surprise to Dennis, but probably a long time coming for Marilyn. The violent outbursts from Dennis grew after he was forced out of the home, and it concerned Marilyn so much that she told co-workers she was scared of him. Principal Bus House recalled, I knew there were some difficulties there and she had some fear of him. The thing she talked about was her safety, if her husband ever came into the building here. She felt he may be unstable enough that he could do harm to her or others around her. There was never any indication, any time of any physical abuse that we saw. She just had this fear he was capable of doing something that could be violent. 
Marilyn's concerns were so severe that she talked about getting a restraining order and changed the locks on the home after their divorce was finalized in January the following year. Co-workers of Dennis started to notice changes in his behavior as well. The equalization director, who had known Dennis since 1973, described him as, quote, a conscientious, good worker, a fairly quiet individual, but since the divorce proceedings, he got a lot more quiet than normal. It was a bitter situation. When you consider the stress he was under and that he took it so bitterly, who knows how that affects a person. He had changed quite a bit and lost a lot of weight. He was an avid Michigan State fan, and during basketball season this year, didn't make comments like he had in the past. He never mentioned anything about guns, he never displayed any tendency towards violence, and I never saw him show a temper. While Dennis continued to spiral about the divorce, things were looking up for Marilyn. 1990 brought a new outlook on life for her, and she was finally getting things into order, according to coworkers. Marilyn was now working on a doctorate in educational administration from Michigan State, and was set to receive her certificate that summer. The fact that Marilyn continued to be a loving mother to three children, a supportive figure to students, and pursue her passion in education was a strong testament to her character and probably angered Dennis further. Marilyn wanted nothing to do with him and was brave enough to take on the daunting task of moving on with her life, divorcing the man she'd been married to the last 18 or so years. According to Dennis's divorce attorney, he became difficult to communicate with in the weeks prior to the divorce being finalized. Dennis even filed for a rehearing and wanted to fire his attorney. On Easter Sunday, 1990, Dennis arrived at Marilyn's home to pick up their children for a court-ordered visitation, but the children didn't want to go with him, infuriating Dennis. An argument ensued. With Dennis placing the blame on Marilyn, for driving a wedge between him and their kids. A screaming match turned into a physical altercation, and suddenly, Dennis was assaulting Marilyn and pushed her down the stairs leading to the basement, severely injuring her. In front of his horrified children, Dennis dragged Marilyn to his 1984 full-size Chevy van and claimed he was taking her to the hospital. He said he'd be right back. However, the Depew children, who were now 18, 17, and 11 years old, knew their mother's life was in more danger while in the hands of their father, so one of them ran to a neighbor and called police. Officers were dispatched to local hospitals, but there was no sign of Marilyn or Dennis. By the time Dennis crossed paths with the Thorntons on their Sunday drive, roughly five hours later, authorities were searching for the Depews. After seeing the red-stained sheet, and Dennis aggressively passed them a second time, Marie Thornton wrote down the van's license plate number. When they came to an intersection that borders the Indiana state line, they spotted Dennis again, this time bent over, switching the license plate on his van. The passenger side door was ajar, with red stains covering the window, seat, and floorboard. Ray finally agreed with his wife that what they saw was definitely blood and something disturbing was in the works. Ray turned the vehicle around and went back to the school to see if they could find the sheet and confirm their suspicions. They parked their car and made their way to the spot they'd seen Dennis earlier. There, in a ditch, covered with brush and leaves, they found the bloodstained sheet. When Ray carefully opened it up, he also saw bits of bone and tissue. There was no denying now that they had witnessed a murderer discard evidence. 
Instead of making the drive back home, they stopped at the nearest farmhouse to call police immediately. When the unsuspecting family opened the door, the Thorntons started rambling about what they saw and were clearly petrified. The situation was so strange and out of the blue that the family at first thought the Thorntons were crazy. They made the Thorntons wait outside while they relayed to police everything they'd been told. A state trooper arrived, then followed the Thorntons back to the school, where they showed him the bloody sheet. The officer took a statement, radioed the information back to authorities, and told the Thorntons to go home. The following evening, a country road worker discovered a woman's body by a tree off Butcher's Road, about five miles away from the school. It was confirmation of what police and the Thorntons expected. 49-year-old Marilyn Depew had been fatally shot once in the head. The question now on everyone's mind is where is Dennis Depew? Authorities started to piece together that Dennis had seemingly premeditated the murder. He'd informed his co-workers that he wouldn't be in the office at all next week. He had several thousands of dollars in cash. And he had a gun. The news of Marilyn's murder was a shock to the entire community. Her friend, and uncle, told the Battle Creek Inquirer, I had hoped she was still alive until I heard they found her body. I was surprised to find out that anything violent had happened. She was very brave because of the way she handled her job and her life. She was usually calm and quiet and used a lot of her counseling skills when anyone was upset. She was a good listener. She was able to keep your confidence. Principal Bus House was quoted saying, It is unbelievable that such a good person would go in such a tragic way. Authorities charged Dennis with murder and added a charge of using a firearm in the commission of a felony. But as they scoured the border of Michigan searching for the van, they knew Dennis was no longer in the state and sought help from the FBI. Authorities searched the home of Dennis's parents in Burr Oak, but that turned up nothing. Claude and Elma hadn't heard from their son and had no idea where he could have gone. Less than two weeks later, after police hit a wall in the search for their suspect, seven residents of Coldwater received letters in the mail. This is what the Battle Creek Inquirer reported, in part. The ex-husband of a woman who was shot to death last week, near Bronson, has mailed letters to seven people in the area since he disappeared after the killing. Dennis Depew also took $4,000 in cash with him when he disappeared, said Sergeant Pat Loss of the Branch County Sheriff's Department. The letters were mailed on one date, April 17th, from one location in the southeast United States, Loss said. They were sent to some school officials and friends of the family. They were letters explaining why the events of that weekend happened, Loss said. He would not identify the recipients or discuss the contents of the letters. However, Ann Dunkel, a high school counselor who had worked with Depew, said she received one of the letters and immediately turned it over to Loss. She said she only saw part of the letter, but said in it he was trying to shift blame for the killing from himself to other people involved. Law said none of the letters gave any indication where he could be found or where he might be headed. Principal Bus House and another teacher at the school also received a letter from Dennis Depew. It arrived in a large envelope with no name on the outside, postmarked as coming from Burlington, Virginia. Inside was a few handwritten pages, torn from a legal pad. Every letter was a little different but all of them placed blame on the recipients for the dissolution of Depew's marriage, and even the murder of Marilyn herself. Dennis truly believed that everything that had gone wrong in his life 
was the fault of those around him, and that it justified his evil actions. However, Dennis still wrote the letters in third person, and never mentioned directly killing his wife. Nearly two weeks after that, the Battle Creek Inquirer revealed that they had received their own anonymous letter. The story was featured on the front page, titled, Confessions of a Killer? So that is all for this week. There will be a part two. I'm sorry. I wrote a lot more than I expected and found a lot more sources, and my voice is a little sore right now, so, so I do apologize, but it will be coming next week. But if you made it this far into the episode, thank you so much for listening, and special shout out to the new Patreon members. Thank you to Rex, Mai, Jar of Teeth, Betty Davis Eyes, Frida, Emma Dadge, and Britt Harris. Thank you all so much for becoming members of the Accomplice tier, and I will try to have this episode fully recorded and out to the Patreon members by hopefully the end of this week. So again, thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.